So a question for you. How do you know you're alive today? Breathing. breathing. That's a good answer. You're breathing. You have a pulse. Some of us may have more robust health than others. But all of us are health challenged to some extent. But there's a big difference between being alive and being not alive. Just stating the obvious. And if you're ill or injured, and if your vital signs are weak, you take steps to recover your health. And you want your healthcare professionals to be giving you true diagnoses and true treatments. It's always nice when you get a true diagnosis, right? And true treatments that really help. Either to sustain your life or improve your, improve your health. False diagnosis and treatments can make you worse and might even lead to your demise, to your death. At the same time as your health is good, that's good to know that as well, right? So to hear that you're, you are vital, you are healthy, and just to hear what it takes to continue to be health, healthy. So that's leading into a, a theme that we're going to be on for the next several weeks called True Life. It's looking at the first letter to John. I'm sorry, John's first letter to a church in Ephesus. Uh, John, the apostle, wrote this letter to a church in Ephesus. That's modern-day Turkey. Probably around the late first century, so around 90 AD. And this church or group of churches needed to understand how they could know they had true life, that is, eternal life, because that's the the true life that we all need is eternal life. And they need to be encouraged in ways to live out this true life. That a person can know, that a person can know, and how a person can know he or she has eternal life is called the doctrine of assurance. Assurance of life. But was John just writing to these churches around Ephesus about assurance just because it was a good thing for him to write about? Just something just for the fun of it. Well, there's a particular situation going on in, in this region that he was writing into. Some of the church community had left to rally around false teaching about Christ. Those who left viewed it as a higher knowledge. They evidently saw themselves as a more enlightened group, which is always fun to be the more enlightened group than the others. Uh, this created some confusion and doubts for those who remained with the churches who were founded by the apostles. So questions arose in their hearts, like, who were the true Christians? How do they know who a true, what is a true Christian? Should they graduate to this higher, more enlightened teaching? Or could they know that they had eternal life, and how? Well, the way John addresses these concerns is to clearly state that a Christian can know he or she has eternal life, and toward the end of this letter, he writes in John, 1 John 5.13. I think we might have this verse up on the screen. He writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And then throughout the whole letter, he uses the words we know and you know over 20 times. So he's very much into helping them be certain about what they believe and, and whether, uh, whether they have eternal life or not. In doing that, he presents three criteria for confirming the presence of true Christian life. Or in other words, evidences, or we might call them tests, of true faith in Christ. Tests of the presence of true life in Christ. 
we might summarize these tests with these words. There was a moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal test. The moral test was, was this. A person with true life in Christ will obey Christ. He will be obedient. He or she will be righteous, will live righteously. The second test, the, the uh, social test, is a person who has true life in Christ will love other people who have life in Christ, will love other, will love other believers. And the third test, the doctrinal test, we might call, uh, they'll, they'll have faith in the truth about Christ. In particular, they'll believe Christ uh, as God's Son in human flesh. And as we're going to see, the false teaching led to a devaluing, a denial, or distortion of each of these three areas of Christian life and faith. So today, we're just going to look at the first four verses of 1 John. And in that, John's going to lay the foundation for what is the content of the faith that, ha- that we receive through true life in. He's laying the foundation for true Christian faith and life. And he talks more about the, import- the purpose for his writing. So, looking at this first verse in 1 John, actually, we'll go ahead and read through these four verses together. Or I'll read it and you can listen. 1 John 1 through 4. 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. John writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May the Lord help us to understand and apply his word. So the first thing he talks about is, or question he's answering is, what is the message of eternal life centered on? What is the core content of the message of eternal life? So to get the subject of this sentence, of the first verse, you've got to go to the end of the verse. So don't follow John's grammar. Some of the apostolic writers, they, obviously they wrote great truth, but they, sometimes they wrote sentences that were hard to follow. So the very last phrase in this sentence is his subject. He calls it the word of life. So he's saying about this word of life, what about this word of life? He's saying what always was from the beginning. This word of life always was from the beginning. And I think here the word word refers to the message about the life. In John's gospel, if you're familiar with John's gospel, so John wrote the gospel according to John. He wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and he wrote what's called the book of Revelation. So in his gospel, he talked about the word of God, and that was the eternal son of God. Here, I think life is actually the reference to the Son of God, and the Word is about the message about the Son of God. And we'll see that more as we walk through the verse. It's kind of tricky to follow his thought. So this message about life, this life is Jesus Christ God's Son. And he says that always was from the beginning, from before the world began. So the question is, what's the origin of life? God. God, he, his son, is, is the life, his son. Life is not a thing floating around out there. Life is the son of God. We'll see more of that 
So this life that always was in eternity past, he says, we have heard, we have seen, who's we? We, the, the apostles and their followers, we heard, we saw, we gazed upon, and our hands touched. How could this be? Only because that which is eternal, this eternal life that always was with God, took on human flesh as the Son of God. The Son of God took on human flesh, stepped into human history. Now, one of the reasons John wrote was to deal with false teaching that had led to some leaving the apostles' church community. So the, the apostolic church community, that just means the church was founded on the teaching of the apostles and prophets. And so those who left the churches founded by the apostles were following a teaching that was an early form of what later became known as Gnosticism. Maybe some of you have heard of that. It comes from the Greek word knowledge. And it just simply means to know. Hey, we're the in in group. We know something. So early form of Gnosticism that really came into full flower in the second century. So one of the elements of this was belief in the essential goodness of spirit and the inherent evil or inferiority of all matter. So in this view, the incarnation of the Son of God was impossible. That's another vocabulary word, incarnation. It comes from a word that just means in flesh, to put on humanity. So the incarnation of the Son of God means the Son of God putting on human flesh. And so they would say that's impossible because matter is bad, spirit's good, and so there's no way God could have taken on a human body upon himself. The Christ spirit, they thought, the Christ spirit might have been able to come upon the man Jesus during part of his earthly ministry, but they refused to directly associate the, uh, the Christ, the Messiah, with the human Jesus. They just didn't believe that was possible because they believed spirit was good and matter was bad. So no way the Son of God, the Messiah, could ever have taken on a human body. Now, today, we hear similar teaching in that the Christ spirit has been on many spiritual masters and holy men. Uh, Jesus was not, in this view, Jesus was not the unique Son of God in human flesh, any more than Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna or other spirit, or even the spiritual potential that you all have. You all could ascend if you press the right spiritual buttons, and uh, you all could become your own God, so to speak. You could become, you could download the Christ Spirit into your own life. But Christ, who is life, is not a spiritual substance floating around that one can access if you just punch in the correct spiritual code. Christ is God who took on human flesh. The only way to have life eternal is to have Christ. We see that in verse 2 of this passage. The life, the life. So in verse 1, he our hands handled the word of life. The life was made manifest. The life was revealed. The life, that's why he's talking about the Son of God. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father. See, the eternal life is not stuff. That It's not a thing. It is a person. Eternal life is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, always with the Father. Or John will say later in 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
So that's how you get eternal life. You get the Son, Jesus, by faith. Then a second question John's answering is, what is the message of this Christ life founded on? And very simply, John says, it's the witness, the testimony of the apostles. And we'll talk about why that's important. The eyewitness testimony of the apostles was that Jesus Christ was the life himself, the Son of God, who took on human nature in addition to his nature as God's Son. Again, the life was made manifest. This is verse 2 in this passage. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. So this early form of Gnosticism would contradict John's declaring the indispensable role of historical witness. Because of their view that spirit and matter are opposed to one another, they would reject that God could show up in human history in Jesus Christ. Another Gnostic emphasis was on the superiority of intellectual enlightenment. Salvation was primarily by knowledge through initiation into a mystical and supposedly superior spiritual knowledge. Only the enlightened, only the enlightened could have salvation, could have the secret knowledge that would get one in touch with God or the Christ spirit. So this Gnostic version of Christianity would be just philosophical ideas with no necessary connection to history. So the testimony of the apostles that they heard, saw, and touched the life himself that is, Jesus the Son, who had taken on human nature and history as indispensable to human salvation, would be seen as ridiculous, irrelevant, inferior, and impossible. Now, how, how do we hear this kind of teaching today? What ways do we see this today? Well, there's a few who actually try to deny that Jesus Christ even existed, which is absurd, because, then, because of the type of historical evidence is what's in writing and we would have to deny the existence of the Caesars and other religious leaders and so on who have less evidence than Jesus does in writing. So not too many people are foolish enough to make that objection, but a few do. A few will deny that Christ even existed. But for the most part, the way you hear this is that Jesus existed for sure, but it doesn't matter whether he was truly Son of God incarnate, the Son of God in human flesh in history. That makes no difference. The only value it has is if you sincerely believe that and it helps you cope with life and be a better person, then that's all that matters. That's fine for you. But it doesn't matter whether the apostles were writing historical truth about Jesus. It doesn't matter whether this was just a myth or spiritual meanderings of spiritual people. It just matters whether it helps you feel better about yourself, live a better life, and so on. You definitely must not insist that believing in Jesus this way is true for all people at all times in all places. That is arrogant. And there are many paths to God. And so that teaching goes. But the apostles claimed that what they preached and wrote about, Jesus being the incarnate Son of God, as well as his death and resurrection, were real historical realities. They wrote as though it's true. So that the Apostle Peter, John's friend, Peter, wrote this. He said, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter is saying, we weren't just writing spiritual higher truths that we, that we discovered by our own spiritual insight. We didn't have a special secret enlightenment. We wrote 
things that we really witnessed, we heard, we saw, we touched. We saw the Son of God. We saw the proof, and we're basing it on uh, our, the, the reality that we saw in history. And so it's all the difference in the world whether the Son of God entered human history or not. So either the apostles were deceived, and we shouldn't believe them. We should just shut down the church, throw away the Bible, be done with it. Or they were, they were deceivers, and in which case we should shut down the church, throw away the Bible, and be done. Or what they wrote was the truth, and we should believe and receive their truth, what they witnessed to about Jesus Christ. There is no other option. Either the apostles were deceived, they were deceivers, or what they wrote was true. There's nothing, there's no other option within that. So either we believe what they wrote is historically true in human history, the Son of God really did enter in human history, or we reject it because it's just falsehood, because they claim what they're writing is true. So there's no place for just saying, well, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, it just matters how it makes us feel. No, not at all. Unless you like to believe falsehood, and some of us do like to believe falsehood. We don't evolve beyond the teaching witness of the apostles. We don't say, like some people have said, my position on this has evolved. We say, no, the apostles' teaching has application that's contemporary, but the teaching itself, what they witness to about Christ, is not to be changed, not to be improved upon. This is how the message got to us. Apostolic witness, apostolic preaching, apostolic writing. That's how we got what we got in the Bible. Then the third thing that John talks about in his writing is his purpose, the purpose of proclaiming this message about the light. We'll see that in verse 3. Kind of already seen it. He says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Once again, for the third time, John says, that's what we, we have seen. And for the second time, that, that which we have heard. So John is just repeating himself over and over again to say, we've seen, we've heard, we're not making this up, we're, we're to be trusted. And he says, the reason we proclaim, we preach this to you, is so that, now he's going to say a, an important purpose for his writing, he and the apostles... Proclaim the message of life who is Christ. It is so that those who receive the message of life may have fellowship with them, with other Christians. You say, what? All that theology and all that preaching just to have fellowship, just to have donuts and coffee? Come on. Isn't that overkill? I mean, you preachers are all like, you preach and, and load us down with theology and all we want to do is eat. You'll get to do that today. There's snacks available. But the word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, its root word means something in common, what you have in common. The word fellowship means it's an association involving close mutual relations and involvement or a partnership in a common bond request. So the first book in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy was called The What? Come on, all you Tolkien fans. The Fellowship of the Ring. This was not about donuts and coffee, right? This was them having a common quest. They uh, had a mutual quest and partnership to resist evil enemy forces and to see righteous rule and peace restored to Middle Earth. So John's saying that the message of Christ, having come in the flesh, 
and having died for our sins and been raised in victory over sin and death, is the basis of Christian fellowship because it is by faith in Christ's saving work he accomplished in the flesh that we are saved. And we are saved into fellowship with, this is incredible, we are saved into fellowship with the Father and the Son. We now have life in common with God the Father and God the Son. That is the greatest thing we have going for us. Eternal life is not just us existing for a long, 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 long time. It's having fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and the Spirit. He is often in the background, and he's kind of in the background here. So John is saying the apostolic preachers and teachers proclaim the message of life in Christ so that those who receive the message by faith can share life in Christ together because we share life with the Father and the Son. We're bonded together in a common life and mission. We are a band of brothers and sisters. People don't become part of the true fellowship of the true life, which is another name for what the church is, the fellowship of true life in Christ, uh, simply by hanging out together or much less by becoming initiates into a secret knowledge or tapping into the Christ spirit or inner light that's in all of us or just by being true to whatever spiritual philosophy helps us be a better person or by sincerely seeking God, whomever we conceive him to be. No, we become part of the fellowship of life with one another and fellowship with God and the Son by faith in the message of Christ in the flesh. The one who united God and man in himself, because he himself was and is, he is eternal life. Therefore, by being united to him, we have eternal life. And he can give eternal life to people who have fellowship with him, who are united to him by faith. Fellowship between Christians and with God and Christ is what eternal life is. And it's what eternal life is for, having fellowship with God and other believers. It begins in this life. It's kind of messed up in this life. It's disrupted. It's hindered by remaining sin and death. But it will be fully realized in the new heavens and new earth. So we get a foretaste of glory divine here. And we get the full thing in the new heavens and new earth. And the final point John makes is he gives a second purpose to to his writing in verse 4. He says, we're writing these things to you so that our joy, our joy may be made complete. Wow, John, really? Complete joy? I mean, can you really deliver on that one? Well, let's see what he's talking about. Uh, John just wrote the purpose of proclaiming life in Christ is fellowship. Fellowship between Christians and with God, the Father and his Son. The fellowship that we have together, the life we share in Christ, produces joy. And yep, it's imperfect and disrupted in this life, as we just said. It's kind of like uh, you get a little taste of it here. It's sort of like the, the Costco snacks. They strategically plan around Costco. You get a little bite of that, and they want you to buy into more of it. All right, that's a really lame illustration, but it kind of gives you the idea that, you know, you get a little bite, and you get the whole thing, the whole big, huge, you know, massive thing they want you to buy full of 10 years of whatever food they're trying to sell you. Not eternal. That's the difference. It's a foretaste of that day when we will all be in the presence of Jesus together. Like Psalm 1611 says, In your presence 
is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. Anybody want that? A few? Like, anybody want that? Fullness of joy in the presence of God? Wake up. John got the idea from Jesus that he's saving us. I know I'm putting you to sleep. It's time to wake up. We're closing in on it. John got the idea from Jesus that he is saving us and working in us so that we will have fullness of joy. We're going to look at three verses, and we're not going to unpack them all, but just so you can get where John's getting this from, from Jesus. John 15, 11, John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And there Jesus was talking about uh, bearing fruit, abiding in his love, keeping his commandments, abiding in his love. And he says that his commandment is that we love one another. So all of that, he said, I'm speaking those things to the disciples, to the original apostles, so that his joy would be in them and, his, and their joy would be made full. Uh, another verse, 16.24, John 16.24. Jesus was saying to the apostles, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. There he's talking about praying to the Father in Jesus' name, asking according to who Jesus is. And there's massive joy in answered prayer. We see that somewhat in this life. The whole realm of answered prayer we'll see in the life to come. And then finally, uh, Jesus in John 17, 13, he's praying to the Father. And he's praying to the, the Father about um, keeping them in his name, keeping the disciples in his name, under his authority, under his grace and protection, that, that the disciples may be one as he and the Father are one. And so in that context, he, he says, But now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. All right, so <clears throat> kind of hard to grasp all that Jesus is saying there, but you get, kind of get the idea that he wants us to have fullness, complete joy. And I just want to make a couple observations about that. First of all, we can't imagine how joyful our God is. We can't imagine how joyful God himself is. Because several of these passages, Jesus is saying that my joy might be in them. Because if God isn't happy, nobody's happy. So God is super, super joyful God. Uh, The joy in the relationship between the Father and Son and Spirit is infinite. It's complete because they are perfectly holy and they have perfect love. And so that's where joy is found. Joy is in perfect holiness, perfect love, perfect relationships. They've got that. You say, well, but doesn't God get sad or angry uh, due to sin and evil? He does, but it doesn't destroy his joy because he knows that he has defeated sin and evil on the cross of, of his son and in the resurrection of his son, and he knows that that's going to come in full. He's not in any doubt. I wonder if this is going to work. Oh, man. It seemed like a good plan at the time. No, God is absolutely certain that sin and evil will be quarantined, condemned, judged, destroyed. And so he is completely a joyful God, even though he feels the hatred of sin and and the sorrows that we experience. Uh, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus endured the massive, infinite sorrow of the cross. There was no greater sorrow 
in the universe that ever could have been experienced but the sorrows that Jesus faced on the cross of becoming the sin bearer, being separated from his father. And yet, for the joy before him, knowing that before him was complete joy, the joy of victory over sin and death, for people and his return to glory with his father. And note again how fundamental it is that Jesus accomplished joy for us in what he did in history. It's, it's no joy for us just to make up something to make us feel good. If it didn't really accomplish, it didn't really happen. If it, Jesus didn't really accomplish the victory over sin and death for us in history, then all we have is kind of a myth, just to make us feel good kind of thing. And then we can't imagine how joyful our God is. We can't imagine how much he wants us to have joy. Fullness of joy, that's what he's saying. I wonder if we believe that. You know, the only reason we don't have complete joy now is because of sin and its consequences. Can you imagine, can you fathom what uninterrupted, constant, intense, eternal joy will be like? Think about that. Can you even, can you imagine what uninterrupted, intense, constant joy? It's like, maybe that's too much. Maybe I don't know if you can handle it. We couldn't handle it except that God's prepared us through Christ for full eternal joy. If you don't want full eternal joy, you don't want Jesus because you've got it coming, whether you want it or not. Yeah. Some of us are not happy unless we're sad, mad, or depressed. <laughs> Truly. Have you noticed that? I'm only happy when I've got something to, a person to criticize, a person to complain about, when things are bad then I'm at my happiest. That's not going to be heaven. In fact, Jesus, when he tells the parable of the talents, a talent was a big weight that was equivalent to a lot of money. And so Jesus told a parable representing himself as a master who entrusted five talents, two talents, one talent to his servants. And the servants represented in the parable are coming back saying, Master, your five talents gained five more. And he said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So that's heaven, entering into the joy of King Jesus. So true joy comes from fellowship with the Father, Jesus, and Christians. They say, I like the Father and Jesus part. Christians is a struggle. That's because we're not perfected yet, but we do have this promise that we get to download some of that joy now. Outside of this, there is at best temporary joy, not the real thing. Even as Christians, we can try to put on and pursue things that produce artificial joy. We're not talking about kind of putting on a fake smile and kind of a chipper, you know, yippy-skippy, happy, fake personality thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a joy that feels the sorrows of this life but, but has a confidence and a satisfaction in Christ and invests its fullest hope in the, in the joy that is to come in full. So some ways we we pursue joy that are inherently harmful or sinful, like drunkenness, tearing down others verbally, stealing, sexual immorality, those things are don't pursue joy that way. Uh, Many other ways that we try to pursue joy are not wrong in themselves, such as hobbies, recreation, media, having a nice yard or home. But if anything, even good things, gets more of our hearts than fellowship with Christ and his people, then we will expect those things to provide the joy that only Jesus can. And the more we expect those things to provide joy, the more disappointment we face, the more disillusionment, 
and we keep depending on them more and more, and they produce less and less fake joy, and we, so we want more and more fake joy, and, and the downward spiral we, spiral we go. So in the process, we experience less and less joy in fellowship with Christ. We need to fight and help one another fight to keep our pursuit of joy centered on fellowship with Jesus and Jesus' people. The reality is there are many sorrows and grief in this life. Man, there are some really hard things. It's hard to, sometimes to, to reconcile joy with, with the sorrows that we face. I'm aware of things in our body, our church body. Uh, you know, we have some friends that are going through horrible uh, the wife's going through terrible throat cancer, and just every day it's torture. That's just one. You know, we were praying as a staff this week, and we hardly got through being able to pray because we were so burdened by the things that we were praying for that we were just in talking about it. We managed to get through, but there are some heavy-duty things. So we're not talking about a, a flippant joy again. We're talking about a real joy that transcends, that overcomes. We can say along with the Apostle Paul, who suffered unlike any of us ever could imagine suffering, we are, here's the reality of the Christian life. We are sorrowful but always rejoicing until that full day when in God's presence there will be fullness of joy. So only the real Son of God who truly became a man for us so he could live, die, and be raised for us so that we could have true, true life. True life equals Jesus and fellowship with the Father and the Son and his people Only that can provide real joy in the midst of life's sorrows, an eternal joy that will one day be complete and full. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for giving us the life himself, your son. Merely and purely out of your free love and grace, you sent him to enter into our flesh and blood history. Thank you, Father, that we have a real Savior who really entered into our, our life as a human being, uniting you with us, obeying in our place, enduring the punishment for sin that we deserve, your wrath, your holy wrath toward our sin. We hate to think about your wrath, but your judgment against our sin magnifies your love all the more, that how could you be so holy and hate sin and yet be so loving and merciful to, not, to, to save us? And you did that in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who endured our sinfulness on the cross and who rose again in absolute certain victory over sin and death. Father, I recognize there are many struggles faced here by everyone today, and some of us just have such intense sorrows, intense grief. May we, Father, find our greatest comfort in having fellowship with you. May we grow in understanding what that means, what that looks like. Fellowship with God, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And you've promised us, Father, if we just have to hang on to this truth by, by raw faith, then give us the faith to believe that you have for us a fullness and of joy, a complete joy, that we get to experience some of that now. We want to, Father, represent the gospel by having a joy that defies the experience of our lives. Not a fake joy, not a plastic, not an artificial anything, but real joy that comes from Christ himself, 
who endured the cross, despising the shame because of the joy set before him. He lived by faith. He knew. He had absolute confidence in the victory that you were going to accomplish through him. So thank you, Father, for the amazing gift of true life in Christ and the fellowship and joy that we can enjoy, that we have as a gift that comes out of that as well. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.